Welcome to the Experts in Sport podcast, brought to you by Loughborough University. This podcast seeks to bring together the worlds of academia and professional practice. If you're interested in the latest research and trends in sport, then this is the podcast for you. Today, I'm with Professor Barry Houlihan, Professor James Skinner and Dr. Daniel Reed, and we're here to talk about doping in sport. Firstly, we discuss what doping is and the reasons athletes dope. We then take a deeper look into the history of doping and the establishment of the World Anti-Doping Agency, or WADA as it's often known. We tackle some controversial questions, including should doping be legalised? We then discuss the success and failures of WADA before providing some recommendations of how doping can be challenged in the future. Hi everyone, thanks for, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Hi Martin. Hi Martin, hello. Hi Martin, nice to be here. Thank you all. So today we're going to talk about doping, but before we do, I think it'd be good for our listeners to just have a little bit of a background on, on, on you guys and, and who they're listening to. So Barry, can you just give us a brief introduction to yourself please? Okay. Um, hello, M- my name is Barry Houlihan. I'm Emeritus Professor of Sport Policy at Loughborough University, and I've been researching aspects of, of doping for 25 years or so. Thanks, Barry. And James, what about yourself? Hi, Martin, again. Um, I'm a Professor of Sport Business at Loughborough University, London, uh, and the Director of the Institute for Sport Business. Like Barry, uh, Doping research has made a large is is a large part of my research portfolio, and I've been researching in the area now for about ten to twelve years. Thanks, James and Daniel. What about yourself? Hi, Martin. I'm currently a lecturer in the Institute for Sport Business at Loughborough University, London, with James. About two years ago, I completed my PhD looking at the legitimacy of the World Anti-Doping Agency, and have recently published a book following a similar title, looking at WADA and multi-level legitimacy analysis. And again, similar to James and Barry, a large amount of my research focuses around anti-doping and anti-doping compliance. Thanks, Daniel. So obviously, we do have all the experts here ready to go and and talk to us about about doping. We're going to touch upon lots of different areas. um, But before we do, I think we probably just need to define kind of what doping is. So Barry, can you introduce us to what doping is? I think as with all definitions, uh, there's uh, a lack of agreement. But the obvious starting point is to say that doping is whatever the World Anti-Doping Agency says it is. And I suppose there are two aspects to that answer. The first is what criteria do the, um, does the World Anti-Doping Agency or WADA use to add a substance or a practice to its list of prohibited substances and practices? And in order for a substance or a practice to be added to its prohibited list, it's got to fulfill two out of three criteria. And those uh, three criteria are, first of all, that the substance or practice has the potential to enhance performance. The second is that the substance or practice um, might be damaging to an athlete's health. And the third is that the substance or practice is contrary to the spirit of sport. So, Uh, As I said, um, in order for a substance or a practice to be added to the list, it's got to fulfill two out of those three criteria. The other way of approaching the definition is to look at the um, World Anti-Doping Code. And in the code, it lists 12 categories or types of of violation of the code. Now, the first one is the 
the presence of a substance in an athlete's uh, urine or blood sample. But there are 11 other categories as well. So, and they range from attempting to, to dope right through to encouraging others to dope or threatening uh, others to dope or trafficking uh, prohibited substances. So there's quite a long list of doping violations in the code most of which are, are, are not directly uh, related to the presence of a substance in an athlete's urine or, or blood sample. So perhaps, Martin, if I could add to the debate around, I guess, the definition of, um, of doping and the three-part definition that Barry alluded to often comes under criticism because of his ambiguous nature. We talk about damaging the health of athletes, uh, but we do know, for example, that many sports themselves are very damaging to the health of athletes. Uh, For example, collision sports, the number of injuries that athletes will pick up over the duration of a career is very damaging to itself. So, you know, that is often held up as an example of there are other things in the in the professional sport, high performance environment that are damaging to the health of athletes, yet we tend to focus on anti-doping particularly. This idea of a level playing field, again, is ambiguous because while a performance enhancing substance may give you a competitive advantage, access to resources, facilities, coaching, uh, financial support, certainly add to the prospects of an athlete being successful on the world stage, um, just as technological advantage, uh, advancements do. For example, we look, we see that in cycling. Uh, we saw that with the swimsuit in the early 2000s, uh, the number of world records that were broken with the use of the, of the swimsuit. So the level playing field, again, is ambiguous and it's led to terms such as financial doping and technological doping that are legal and provide a competitive advantage. And this idea about the spirit of sport, again, is contentious because it was really, I guess, a a rule that has very romantic notions about amateur ideals that underpin sport. And I think high-performance professional sport is extremely competitive uh, and, and winning is the main goal uh, and performance, uh, optimising performance is the main goal. And this this also speaks to ethics and integrity. And we can think of sport now, how those how the ethics and the moral and ethical dilemmas around sport are blurred in this pursuit of winning and performance uh, uh, and attaining, I guess, ultimate performance. So the definition itself has been contentious and, and has led to many debates, but that is, that's the framework that Barry articulated is, is what we work within. It's really interesting the concepts you, you bring out there. You know, you talk about the technological side, and obviously at the moment with, with running, the running shoes and the, the carbon plates in shoes. Just, just as a plug, we do have another podcast that will be out soon on that one. So uh, we can we can go into that one in more detail with the uh, Sports Tech Institute here at Loughborough. Um, and, and again, like you mentioned, as soon as you said within the spirit of, of sport or the spirit of the games, it is so ambiguous because win at all costs would be the spirit of some people. So mm-hmm. it, it's really interesting to talk about those things. So it brings us around to, and, and I suppose you've touched on it already, but why, why do people dope? Why would people be looking for this advantage? I suppose the... 
The most obvious answer is, uh, in the present day, is money. Since the end of the amateur uh, phase of sport, sport is a huge industry and athletes can make vast sums of money by being successful at sport as football players or as, as track athletes. And so there's always that temptation to uh, boost your career through through doping or extend your career through doping. So money, I think, is the, the biggest driver. But there's also, I think, simply the status that comes with being a world champion or being a successful athlete. And thirdly, it's not just athletes who provide the motivation to dope, that there are plenty of historical examples of governments giving their elite athletes uh, very little choice about whether they dope or not. I suppose the best example would be the former East Germany, where athletes um, were just given drugs and weren't told what they were and said that, you know, they were, they were vitamins or whatever. But clearly this was a state-organized and orchestrated doping program. So it's a mix of individual motives, uh, but also government motives as well. And I think we'll probably come on to it later on with Russia and its doping program, that relationship between the state and the freedom of the individual athlete to choose what they take and don't take, I think is, uh, uh, is still a, a very current issue. It's re really interesting points, Barry. Daniel, you've got something to add to that? I agree totally with Barry about the overriding factor being performance related. There's also some really interesting um, research around time points and flashpoints within an athlete career as well that might not necessarily be directly related to performance, but are still relevant. So, for example, following injury, as Barry kind of alluded to in terms of prolonging career, often during a serious injury, that can be a time point in which an athlete considers doping. Uh, likewise, in transitional periods, so particularly moving from, I guess, youth or elite academy environments into um, professional sport can be another temptation point, given that there's the physical demands that come along with um, professional adult sport, transitioning from junior or youth sport, however you want to term it. So there is certain time points within this athlete career that doping becomes more of an incentive in addition to just the performance benefits but the wider social context that exists around an athlete's career and prolonging that and also ensuring that they go on to have a successful career in the first place that's really interesting daniel as well and probably gives some understanding to people of why an athlete would think about these these things and prolonging the career is a really interesting point and especially during that period of in injury where they have a lot of time to reflect and want to be the person they used to be it's a, it's a really interesting point. James, did you, have, did you have something to add there? I was just going to echo the sentiments of, for example, if a, if a coach is committed to winning, it's likely more likely that those his athletes or her athletes might be more susceptible to engaging in doping behaviours to get over injuries or to increase performance. So the world that athletes, elite athletes are socialised into and the, the set of values, norms and behaviours that they're socialised into as a consequence of that can certainly influence an athlete to dope as well. Yeah, and I think we've heard many stories around that, especially the, the culture, I suppose, of cycling, which we, we might touch upon later on. So we've defined as best we can what doping is, and I think we've grasped an understanding of why people dope. So could we touch upon, you know, how we've tried to stop doping? Okay, um, the World Anti-Doping Agency, which has existed now for about 20 years, prior to it, you had an immensely complicated and largely ineffective system for dealing with 
doping in sport because every sport would have its own set of anti-doping regulations. And on top of that, many countries had a set of laws or regulations regarding doping in sport. And the problem was that as, from I suppose about the 1960s onwards, as sport became more and more international with a huge growth in the number of international competitions, athletes were global citizens. They traveled around the world to participate in track and field events or cycling events or football events, whatever they might be. And so you had situations where you might have a road cyclist who was uh, based in Australia, but was competing mainly in Europe, might be in at times a Tour de France, which might move from Belgium through into France, crossing national boundaries. Which set of regulations governed their behavior in relation to doping. And there were a number of examples where athletes avoided a penalty for doping simply because the rules either were in conflict with each other, that is the rules of the the country that they were registered in were different to the rules of the country that they were competing in, or simply the rules were badly written, that they were not updated, they had too many loopholes. And if you had a fairly rich athlete who could afford to employ a skilled lawyer, it was quite easy to avoid a penalty. So that complexity was becoming more and more prominent throughout the um, the 1980s and 1990s. But there were a series of major scandals that may, uh, turned this sort of, I suppose, largely private issue for sports authorities into a, a, a public issue of concern to governments and to the, the wider public opinion. And I suppose the first one of those would be the um, Ben Johnson case where in the the Seoul Olympics in 1988, he won the 100 metres, the men's blue ribboned event. He also broke the uh, the world record. And then the Within two days, it was identified that he'd uh, tested positive for steroids. And that was uh, a national scandal in Canada, but also a world event in terms of being on the front page of newspapers around the world. And that prompted uh, some action by the the Canadian government in particular, but raised the the profile of the issue. But it wasn't until uh, 10 years later that at the Tour de France, there was again another major scandal where one of the the most prominent teams at the Tour de France were found to have uh, extensive uh, drugs in their entourage and the the vehicles that that were following them. And this prompted the the French government to intervene. Rather than leaving it to the sports authorities to deal with, the French government's view was this is a national scandal. The Tour de France is their most prestigious event of national significance, national cultural significance. The intervention of the French government frightened the sports authorities because they felt that they were losing control over the issue of doping. And the IOC, which until then had seen itself as being the leading organization in responding to doping, called a major conference and proposed that it would establish an anti-doping organization, a commission maybe, under its authority that would establish global protocols for dealing with, uh, with doping. Unfortunately for the IOC, it came at a time when the IOC was mired in 
a number of scandals around voting for um, the selection of host cities. So there were a combination of governments which objected to the IOC having control over the issue. Mainly the American government, which it's a rare intervention for the American government to get involved in in sport, but also the European Union and uh, major European countries. So that was the the genesis of WADA. These uh, governments said, we don't want this organization to be under the authority of the IOC. We want it to be as independent as it can be. And so WADA was established. In many ways, it's a unique organization because most international organizations are either governmental, that is, they're basis of membership is the affiliation by governments or they're private like around the banking industry there are a number of international protocols that are privately established by banks to help them do their their business but wada is a, a hybrid organization that half of its membership of its um, foundation board and executive board come from governments and the other half come from sport organizations, largely the IOC. And half its money comes from governments and half comes from sport organizations. So it's a, a peculiar organization. And as I said earlier on, the ambition was to make it as independent as possible. And we might come back to this later on about the degree to which it is independent. But the objective and the, the, the mission set for WADA was to establish a global set of regulations for dealing with doping. That is, there would no longer be different regulations for football, for cycling, for rugby, for whatever. And countries would not have uh, different sets of regulations. There would be one set of regulations which would govern sport organizations and governments. And that, to a large extent, has, was achieved fairly rapidly. By, I think, 2003, there was the first version of the World Anti-Doping Code. And to date, there's hardly an international sport organization which has not signed up to the code. The number of countries that, has, uh, that have signed up to the code is uh, larger than the number of members of the United Nations. So in terms of getting ratification of the code from sport authorities and from governments, it's been highly successful. And so we do have this document, the World Anti-Doping Code, which is updated about every six years or so. And it, uh, the, the latest version is the 2021 code. And that code is the reference document for all sports and all governments for dealing with uh, anti-doping. And it's supported by a number of international standards which govern how testing should be undertaken about education, uh, a set of guidelines. So it's a very comprehensive set of documents focused on the World Anti-Doping Code that is now the reference document for, as I said, all sports and all governments. The other document which is, is important is the, the prohibited list. So it's the list of prohibited substances and practices, which sits in parallel with the code and is updated every year. And so those two documents are the documents that now govern anti-doping uh, around the world. So just to add to Barry's comprehensive overview of the evolution of water and the code, perhaps with a particular focus on water's legitimacy, which is important here. And I think the first point Barry makes about government and sport bodies coming together to oversee anti-doping is a really important one because that was seen as giving water greater legitimacy in the anti-doping space. And it was seen as a way of bringing, I guess, capital and influence together. So financial resources, but influence and reach 
to oversee anti-doping in sport. So that partnership gave what a greater legitimacy. The code itself, as Barry has said, has evolved significantly over time and its focus, the content within the code has changed as well, you know, starting initially as a mechanism for policy harmonisation with a focus on testing, evolving, you know, more into additional roles that sporting organisations and anti-doping organisations have had to take on. For example, moving into the more investigative domain uh, associated with anti-doping. So as a code is, the code has evolved and what is uh, the expectations on what have evolved as a consequence. One of the initial challenges, as, as Barry pointed to with the code, was standardising it and formalising the code. And there was a couple, I guess, of important conventions that took place to do that. The Copenhagen Agreement, for example, that was signed in 2003 was really a political document that allowed governments to recognise their code, its intention to recognise the code and, and to enforce uh, the laws within the code across sport organisations. And the UNESCO Agreement in 2007 as well provided a legal framework for governments to act on around anti-doping violations that took place outside of sport organisations also. So you can see the code wasn't written and then has just remained static. It's required support from other agencies, organisations, and as doping has evolved, so has the code evolved to mirror the challenges that water has faced. Now, like you said, that's a really comprehensive overview. And, and as you've talked about kind of the evolution of WADA, I think it'd be good to kind of move move on to looking at the success that, that there's been with WADA, potentially some of the challenges. And I know, Daniel, you've done some interesting things around kind of mission creep for, for WADA. So I just go back there. What, what kind of success has, has WADA brought to, to this environment? We already talked about the fact that it's unified both sporting organisations and national governments together under one structure, umbrella framework to create a harmonised set of policies and rules. Now, the full set of policies and rules aren't perfect. There's reasons why they're challenged. There's reasons why they're still contentious. But just the ability within a very political environment, within a very commercially driven environment, to bring that many stakeholders together and to agree to one harmonious set of policies and rules is a huge success by any industry measure. So not necessarily the success of those rules, but just the ability to bring so many stakeholders together can't be underestimated. And I think it speaks to what Barry said earlier in the development that there was so much fragmentation prior to the development of WADA that still you can't really underestimate the usefulness and ability to have globalized, harmonized rules. Now we can speak about the fact that to be uh, an Olymp part of the Olympic movement, you need to adopt the World Anti-Doping Agency and the World Anti-Doping Code. So the extent to which some of these partners have jumped in through kind of commitment to it and the extent to which some have been dragged by their feet because otherwise it would create issues with their uh, commitment to the Olympic movement can be debated. But I think the ultimate su success is the idea that we've created a code that can be applied across context that means that an athlete competing in cycling in Europe is in theory going to be treated the same way to a weightlifter competing in Australia. And there's not going to be, in theory, these discrepancies because of the sport or the nation or the athlete. So that, to me, is the ultimate kind of success of WADA. Now, as James has alluded to, one of the things that has kind of shown up the World Anti-Doping Code is that it needs to be reactive. So 
We've seen plenty of scandals across the last 20 years, notably um, Lance Armstrong, as I'm sure most listeners will be aware of. Also, the Russian Olympic doping scandal. There's also sport-specific doping scandals, so the Balco Laboratory quite early on in WADA's existence, um, Operation Puerto within cycling. All these instant instances revealed that there was deficiencies within the code. So we see a kind of reactive component where WADA started out as just this organization that was there to harmonize, to create an overarching framework. In response to the amount of challenges that have been presented within anti-doping, it's kind of had to extend its reach into new missions and to new capabilities. So the most prominent one really is this idea of the investigation. So WADA now is viewed as an investigatory body. It has an intelligence and investigations department. And that's largely because of the success that we've seen in anti-doping investigations instead of going down the traditional analytic route. So if we can find evidence that is what's termed non-analytical, so whether that be through whistleblower testimony or finding athletes in possession of performance-enhancing substances or paraphernalia, that kind of creep as we call it that mission creep has come about because wada and the wada code has had to be reactive to the challenges which kind of shows this conflict that yes it's a very successful document but at the same time we're constantly being revealed with new challenges that indicate that doping is still going on and in some instances can be quite widespread. That's really interesting, Daniel. Some of it goes back to what Barry mentioned at the start around there was a, a number of areas that athletes can be suspended for doping and it's not just about what's in their blood, it's about all these other elements. And I know, James, I, I've, I've heard you, you talk before and I know you've got some interesting statistics around how many athletes are tested and caught compared to how many athletes are... No, almost known to be doping? So there, there are official statistics around doping, and this speaks to the what Daniel was talking about for the need for non-analytical testing as well. Because um, testing is an expensive proposition for um, anti-doping organisations to undertake. It, it costs a lot of money to test athletes, and they do so many tests per year in and out of competition. But the actual percentage of athletes that are found to have adverse findings um, is quite small. It's less than 2%, perhaps I think around 1.7%. It varies by nation. Uh, And that's to have an adverse finding. That's not necessarily to lead to suspension uh, from sport and to be found guilty. So given the number of tests that athletes do and the number of adverse findings that have resulted from that, the public perceptions differ to what the official statistics say. So we did some work looking at public perceptions around what athletes dope, and the numbers were a lot higher. And if we're talking in the performance enhancing area, not the recreational drug use, you know, in some sports, particularly the collision-based sports, the sports that require power, uh, speed, explosiveness, you know, the public feel that in some cases that, you know, the use of performance enhancing drugs by those athletes is up around about 30%, um, which is significantly higher than what the adverse findings statistics suggest of how many athletes are out there doping. And in some sports, it goes even higher given the publicity around its cycling, for example. So what non analytic testing does is allow you to move beyond those 
I guess, physiological markers of, of, of doping and use, as Daniel's, uh, Dan said, you know, witness testimony and whistleblower evidence, and, you know, and these type of new ways of identifying anti-doping uh, practices in the end were the downfall of people such as Lance Armstrong without non-analytical techniques. It's questionable whether Lance Armstrong would have been found guilty of um, doping violations. So they form an important part of the armory now for what for anti-doping organisations and for WADA because the physiological testing for doping is questionable because it seems that in some ways that the dopers are in front of the testers and they're always one step in front and adverse findings are difficult. But to catch someone purely on physical markers is proving to be very difficult. Yeah, it's just a small point in what James is saying, and there can actually be quite a nice synergy between the non-analytical and the analytical component. So if there is, for example, uh, whistleblower information or informant information that the suspicion that someone might be doping, then what that actually enables is more targeted testing so organisations with greater resources, if they have a tip-off of when someone might be using a prohibited substance, can then go and actively target that individual, test them frequently to try and detect whether that's happening. So it really, without the, the non-analytical component, testing can be quite broad and diffuse and non-analytical side of things in of itself is very useful and can also inform the testing policy so that like james said if you're spending a lot of money on testing are you doing it in the most efficient manner are you doing it in a manner that is most likely to detect those who are doping i think this is important too Martin, because the research we did looking at public perceptions and i i, I should stress it was an australian research um study where we we did interviews Telephone interviews with over two and a half thousand members of the public. They're against doping. You know, the the overwhelming number of the public felt that doping shouldn't exist in sport. Um, so the, these new tools that what are using to find dopers aligns with, I guess, community expectations that doping should be should not occur. Most people are against doping in sport. So I think this is why we, we're also getting a mixture of approaches to identifying dopers is because the expectations of the community is that they want a level playing field uh, and water should do their best and government should do their best to create that. Do the, do the general public sometimes sometimes become confused with, with doping? I think one of the things that came out a lot around cycling is the exemptions, the therapeutic exemptions could you guys potentially touch upon what a therapeutic exemption is and and how and if whether these people have ever bent the rules on this? And it's a con probably a controversial question. It is controversial, certainly. The regulations regarding therapeutic use exemptions have become a lot tighter in recent years. But basically, an athlete can apply for a therapeutic use exemption and it will be granted under certain conditions. And what a therapeutic use exemption means is that an athlete can use a prohibited substance and not be penalised for it. Now, what the Therapeutic Use Exemption Committee will look for, will it'll ask, first of all, is there a, an alternative treatment or therapy for the condition the athlete has, which doesn't involve using a substance on the prohibited list? If there isn't, they will then ask, well, what protocol or amount of the substance will 
enable the athlete to compete, but not to exceed their normal standard of performance or, or standard of health. Now, that sounds as controversial as it is and as difficult to uh, determine. And that's where the, the controversy is that, you know, what is somebody's normal standard of performance? Uh, how much of a, a particular substance do they need to take in order to get back to that normal level of, of performance? So there's always been a suspicion that's, that some athletes have been timing their application for a therapeutic use exemption to coincide with uh, competition. And there have been controversies around um, the application for therapeutic use exemptions by cyclists coming up to the Olympics, in, in particular in recent years, and British cyclists as well. There have been some statistical analyses of the performance of athletes who've been granted a therapeutic use exemption and comparing it with those who have not applied for or not been granted a therapeutic use exemption and seeing whether you know, the suspicion was that those who had a therapeutic use exemption would be more likely to obtain a medal or do well in, in a competition. And the, the evidence uh, suggests that there's not an obvious advantage in getting a therapeutic use exemption, that the number of medal winners is roughly in proportion of a proportion that you would expect. However, it still remains controversial in the mind of the public, and particularly around the use of uh, asthma preparations where in endurance sports, where there's a feeling that it helps with um, lung capacity and with breathing. So it's controversial, even though the, the statistical evidence is not clear cut in terms of whether it um, gives these athletes an unfair advantage uh, or, or not. But as I said, the regulations have tightened up considerably, but it is still a controversial area. You, you can perhaps help me now, Barry, on, on a controversial um, piece. I, 20 plus years ago in, in my football academy, there was myself and the other centre midfield player. It was the beep test. And everyone was on betting who's going to win between me and this other person. And before we started, he had a few goes on his asthma inhaler. And I was like, hold on, that's, that's not fair. You know, he, how can he have that and I can't? We, we did the beep test. We both collapsed at the side on exactly the same point. So we drew. But I'm hoping now that you'll give me credit to say at least I had a moral victory there because I had no exemption. And <laughs> the moral victory is yours, Martin. <laughs> now, Martin, if he didn't have an exemption for that, he should get a suspension. Yeah. <laughs> it's the way it's going to work. Later and see if we can get that, uh, his, his result null and void. But suspensions are rare, I think, with the use of TUEs. They're not commonplace. And... Mm -hmm. um, Athletes often create the case after the fact. I think the most recent suspension is probably um, Sharapova's suspension I can think of for the use of Meldomian, was it? Yeah. I think she got two years reduced to 15 months, something like that. But it's not common practice that athletes do get suspensions for TUE use. So even though we've, we've probably we've probably muddied the water even more with the, the TUE side of things, we have at least explained what it is and, and, and where it may or may not be utilised. I, I think it's always going to be controversial um, how it's used. Yeah, I mean, if... I mean, the argument in favour of TUEs is that, uh, particularly with regard to the Olympics, there are some sports where you get maybe 
only one or maybe two opportunities to perform in this most spectacular arena that is the, the Olympic Games. And that if somebody strains a muscle or, or has a, an infection that could rule them out of that opportunity when they've been preparing for it for, for maybe you know the, the previous three and a half years or so, we should cut them some slack and, and give them the opportunity to to compete. So the, the motive is, is I think, a, a laudable motive. It's the operation which um, causes people problems. So I, I think the IOC is keen to defend it, as indeed are many other sports are keen to defend it, even though or, or despite the, the controversy that it tends to generate. I think it comes back as well, Barry, to what you said earlier about how a TUE is granted and that return to normal performance. Yeah. And is it, for example, an athlete taking painkillers because they've got sore legs, although it's not prohibited substance, if they take painkillers to numb some of the pain, perhaps even during competition, at what point does that then become something that is non-normal? So it's such a, and like many of the antidoping issues we deal with, it's such a gray area because where do you ethically scientifically draw the lines in a lot of the the language that is used in our legal and political frameworks i'm trying, i'm using this as a therapy session now guys because you mentioned painkillers and i ran this week for you as well here james i ran the sydney marathon many many moons ago probably 10 years ago and a, a friend a friend of mine beat me in the marathon and we were talking about pain and where it starts to hurt in a marathon and he said oh, well, I just had a few painkillers about five miles before that. And again, I think he should be banned. So again, I think his results banned and, and I win again. <laughs> but just move, moving on slightly from, from this, yeah. and I spoke Martin, to you're, you're Martin, you're noble but naive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's potentially true as well. Um, but morally, I'm, I'm correct. I'm in the right place. So that's, that's oh, yeah. the best to take from this. Um, but moving the, the kind of therapeutic exemption piece forward and the question that many people would have down the pub, and I know it's controversial, but if we can't catch people doping, and we know some people are doing it anyway, there is the question that comes out a lot of times, should, should doping just be legalised? It, it's an interesting point and a debate that's been picked up by a number of scholars as well. Uh, will it actually create a level playing field? Is contestable. How, how do we legalise it? What's the policy framework for it? How many performance enhancing drugs can you take? How much should I take compared to say what you should take, Martin, given our biophysical differences? So can you standardise the amount of uh, performance enhancing drugs that you should be allowed to take to increase a similar amount of performance? I'm not sure if that's possible. So there's there's those debates around that. Uh, and also the developed countries have probably got access to better performance enhancing drugs, should we say, whereas the developing world's probably got cruder drugs that are probably going to have bigger impacts on athletes' health and long-term implications for their health. Uh, and who, do you, who monitors it? Who oversees it? Who's responsible for that? So there's all those questions. For me, the bigger question is a moral question around anti-doping. So if we legalise it, uh, and if I use my daughter as an example, who was a good sprinter, a very good sprinter, had a lot of potential, unfortunately, 
wasn't really interested in it, but that's another debate. And you can imagine how frustrating that must be with someone with my background, but she didn't really, wasn't of interest to her, but she was a very good sprinter. But if I was to say to her, right, in order for you to move forward to the next level, we need to get you a biochemist and we need to create a cocktail of performance enhancing drugs that you can take so that you can perform on the international stage uh, at the highest level. I wouldn't be comfortable with that. And I don't think many people would. So, you know, that moral dilemma of having to shift from someone's love of the sport who has a natural ability then to engage in behaviours that can improve your performance that may have potential implications for you in the long run. Should we be really letting athletes do that? If we start to legalise it, then we're going to get youth athletes at the ages of 14, 15, 16 and so on thinking about engaging these behaviours in order to enhance their career uh, and perform on the international stage. So I think there's a moral dilemma around legalising it as well as the other challenges that I raised. Let me say, first of all, I, I agree with James. No, I, w- I want to put the case for uh, legalising doping. I mean, th- there are a number of arguments you can make. One, you can say that the nature of sport has changed, that it's no longer a distinctive activity. It's part of the entertainment industry. And we don't regulate drug use in rock music, jazz, theatre. We see it as entertainment. And that for most people, sport is entertainment. It's passively passively absorbed. It's not uh, active participation. A second argument is that doping is cheap science. And this goes back to a comment that James made earlier on about other forms of doping, technological, financial doping. And I've heard the argument made to me in the past by coaches from a poorer country who said that for us, doping could be seen as cheap science. We don't have access to computer analysis of our gymnasts. We don't have access to 10,000 pound bikes for the velodrome for many people are seen as a way in which richer countries maintain their dominance in the Olympic medals table. So poorer countries are excluded from the science they can access, that's cheap science, in order to maintain the dominance of uh, rich countries who've got access to this expensive science. A third argument is that there's this aura of paternalism towards athletes that we know better than, than, than them how to look after themselves. And again, linking back to, to a comment James made earlier on about one of the reasons for trying to prevent doping is that it's, it might be dangerous for an athlete's health. Well, so much sport is dangerous to an athlete's health. And we don't intervene to say, look, don't play rugby, don't play American football, don't go mountaineering because they're dangerous sports. Why should we say, oh, don't take these drugs because they're dangerous to your health? So you can't be paternalistic in one respect and not in another. So there are a number of arguments which would say that there's an inconsistency underpinning the uh, anti-doping regulations. I should say, despite all that, I still think that we need to defend the anti-doping code and the work that WADA does. And it comes back to this notion, this slippery, vague notion of the spirit of sport, that sport is not just entertainment. There is something distinctive about it. It does have a set of qualities and a sort of moral underpinning that makes it different from simple entertainment. And It is the sort of examples that James gave about would you want to 
encourage members of your family to take these risks. But would we want to consume sport as spectators if we knew that it was routinely underpinned by doping? I think one just marginal comment to this is that although many families would withdraw their children or discourage their children from participating in sport if it involved taking drugs. There are plenty of examples of parents doing the exact opposite. I remember reading a paper some years ago about the number of parents who came to, this is in the United States, to doctors asking for their children to be, their usually male children, to be given human growth hormone because they were going to be six foot two. But if they were going to continue to be good at basketball. They needed to be six foot six or six foot eight. And there are a number of examples of parents who are quite willing to take that risks on behalf of their children or get their children to take those risks. It's it's a, a highly controversial area, but I think when it comes down to what sport is, we do have to come back to this awkward notion of the spirit of sport, that sport is something special and we need to defend it. And that's what the code is trying to do and what WADA is trying to do. Barry, I think that's an outstanding articulation of some of the controversial pros of legalising doping, underpinned very nicely with, with the spirit of sport and the moral side of things of why actually I think we're all saying no, but it's a very great points there that people could probably touch upon and talk about. Daniel, do you have something to add there? Just to echo really what James and Barry have said already, that I also kind of disagree with the argument that it should be legalised. And I think very much building on what they've already said. When we look at sports like American football right now in the US that are going through a concussion crisis and we see adults actively putting their children out of that sport, for a lot of sports, legalising doping could spell the end of it in terms of a commercial and popular success because once a sport does become associated with a stigma of doping, so James's example of his daughter, there is a real potential that's not often mentioned in this discussion that everyone thinks that legalising doping in a sport would be, well, everyone's going to turn up and watch it because we'll see the most fantastic athletes. But for a number of sports, it could actually have the reverse effect and in the long term see their ultimate demise because parents don't want their children involved in these sports. And that point often gets lost, but I think it very nicely rounds into what James and Barry have said. Um, from the point of view of those organisations who are making huge sums of money out of sport, you know, what is the unique selling point of sport? You know, and I think there are a number of points. You know, one is that it's youthful, it's exciting, but it's also seen as relatively clean. Dan's exactly right. You then put at risk this um, golden industry, which is generating so much money for broadcasting companies and for international sport federations and the IOC. So there are a number of commercial as well as moral arguments for trying to strengthen and support the work of the World Anti-Doping Agency. And this is where the tension lies as well, Mark, I think, because the commercial underpinnings of professional sport in many cases leads to sport organisations not wanting to be transparent about doping. They don't want to embrace the code fully or they don't want to embrace anti-doping practices. Uh, they want to protect the brand. And sometimes what that means is the challenges for water as a consequence become complex because organisations see the commercial value of sport that it's bringing in. And if you tarnish that brand, as Dan alluded to, then your broadcasting numbers can fall, your um, your attendance numbers may drop, um, so your revenue suffers as a consequence. There's numerous examples of sporting organisations 
failure to recognise or acknowledge the extent, perhaps, to what doping was going on within their sports for commercial reasons. I think, you know, a good example perhaps is American baseball, or as in many ways, when baseball was going through a very difficult time and rebuilding itself as a consequence of a number of player strikes and broadcast numbers and attendance numbers were down, it was turned around by the fantastic form of of a couple of baseball stars, Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds, who broke hitting records at the time. Uh, and that brought the crowds back, you know. But to some, so to some extent, you know, steroids saved baseball because, you know, the home runs being hit. But it was later found that they were both in breach of anti-doping violations. And the question that one would ask is how long did the authorities actually know this was going on but chose to ignore it? And I'm not saying that they did, but did they choose to ignore it because, the, the you know, the records that were being broken by Bonds and Maguire as a consequence of this, we're bringing the crowds back to baseball. Do you actually come down on it or do you just let it continue and plead ignorance Mm -hmm. because your sport now is regenerating itself? Uh, And these are some of the challenges that we we, we face when trying to enforce anti-doping practices. Which probably brings us back around to that same conversation of legalisation and you articulated really, really nicely. And just to finish off, I mean, we've talked about what doping is. We've talked extensively around water and, and numerous case studies of things. What can be done now to reduce doping? And, and where do we think the future is around this? And you may have touched upon some of this already, but just to kind of conclude on this. Okay, if I, I'll start off. I mean, I, I think w- one of the problems that the World Anti-Doping Agency has is that it has um, exaggerated what it's possible to do. And the code often talks about clean sport, drug-free sport, eliminating doping from sport. It's nonsense. It's never going to happen. It's like talking about crime-free society. And what WADA is doing is managing as best it can the problem of doping in sport. There needs to be a bit more realism in what's possible. In terms of what is the best strategy for trying to control the amount of doping in sport, then I think as Dan mentioned earlier on, over the years we've seen a shift in the focus of WADA from conducting tests to undertaking investigations, but also trying to ensure compliance by the signatories to the code. Uh, And that's the job that it's doing now. Its investigative unit has got a number of successes and I'm, I'm sure that that is an area that it will continue to develop. It's also, I think, trying to strengthen the protocols around compliance, particularly compliance by governments and compliance by sport federations. That's more tricky to do. But again, I think the most recent example would be around um, weightlifting, the International Weightlifting Federation, where there has been complicity in in covering up doping for a number of years. And that's been exposed largely by the work of of WADA. But then it, it puts the onus on organizations such as the IOC to punish weightlifting by not inviting it to the the Olympic Games. Now, I don't think we've got to that yet, but the IOC has talked about that. Again, it comes back to this question about protecting the image of the Olympic Games as a clean sport event. So I think WADA is going in the right direction around investigation and compliance, but we've all got to be realistic about what is possible to achieve. I agree with everything Barry said so far. And building on that issue of compliance, I think 
the notion of independence has been discussed for a while now and operational independence so like james said in previous examples we have signatories and sports organizations that indirectly may benefit from tolerating doping within their sport or at least being apathetic to trying to really root it out now the emergence of what are so-called independent integrity units operating for different sports federations i think has been a really positive development so as an example athletics now has an athletics integrity unit they're seemingly seemingly doing quite a good job there's a number of former world champions world record uh, world record holders have been detected so there doesn't seem to be that same instance of protection of elite commercial properties that athletes become when they become these superstars so i think this notion of an independence integrity unit has a lot of uh, potential the only point i would raise is that it took arguably the big biggest scandal in athletics history associated to the russian olympic doping scandal for there to be widespread change similarly uh, biathlon has just introduced a biathlon integrity unit tennis has an integrous tennis independent integrity unit to deal with match fixing all these units have come about because of serious scandal and serious problem and the challenge going forward that I hope can be addressed is how do you motivate organizations to proactively implement the changes that we've discussed yeah I will just echo the comments of Barry and Dan on this Martin you know Barry makes a good point you're never going to totally eliminate doping you know just like you're never going to totally eliminate people from speeding on the motorway it's going to happen regardless of what you put in place and it, it, it does. It comes down to collaborations between major stakeholders, investigative bodies like Interpol, the relation, sport organisations, international federations working in concert with government. So they need to share information and work as a collective. Yeah, the development of new policies, whistleblower policies, for example, investigative agencies that Dan referred to with cricket, tennis, athletics. I think the establishment of the international testing agency in 2018 as a by WADA or that is supervised by WADA as a consequence of the Russian doping scandal, you know, provides greater transparency, more expertise, provides more independence around testing. So, that you know, th- these type of practices are going to contribute to, I think, managing and overseeing or reducing the amount of doping that goes on. But you'll never eliminate it because those that want to dope will dope and there'll always be those that will look to beat the system. And the challenge for the testers, as I said, is to stay in front of the cheaters, if we want to use that terminology. And that can be difficult because the science behind doping is evolving quickly, just as it is around testing. And you have new forms of doping, you know, genetic modifications now, uh, et cetera. So it's going to be a challenge moving forward, but it does require groups coming together and working as a collective rather than individuals, I think, or individual agencies trying to do their own thing. James Danner, thank you very much for your time. You've given us a real kind of comprehensive guide there to to doping and, and the development of WADA. And we've touched upon a variety of kind of controversial subjects, which I think you've really articulated well with some of them key points that you've you've added there. So I really appreciate your time. I'm sure other people may have some questions because just just ending there, James, there was, you know, there's that potential to talk about the development of different types of, of drugs and, and how we kind of get over that. So I'm sure if our audience has any questions around things and if you know if you guys are interested in, in getting on a call again with anything in the future. 
let's hope nothing happens in this Olympics, but you never know. There might be a conversation that we need to have in, in, in a few months' time. But I really appreciate your time and I've, I've really enjoyed that conversation. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Loughborough Sportcast. If you want to get in touch and let us know any subject areas or experts that you'd be keen to listen to, then contact me, Martin Foster, on m.foster at alborough.ac.uk or tweet me at martinfoster82. Bye for now. We'll see you next time. <laughs>